Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Amen. Cody wasn't joking in the sense that we do listen to his singing. He's really good at a lot of other things. I'll say that. So, <laughs> uh, If I haven't met you yet, my name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors here uh, as well. Get to work with Cody. We try to not take ourselves super seriously and uh, take Jesus really seriously. So over the last six weeks, we have been walking through the book of Daniel, and we've walked through some of the most familiar stories in the Old Testament, if not some of the most familiar stories in the Bible. So if, you, if this is like your first week at Kendall, or maybe you're just visiting for the baptisms, you probably haven't missed a whole lot, honestly, because we've looked at stories like Daniel and the lion's den, You've probably heard of it. Or like Nebuchadnezzar and the gold statue, you know, the, the VeggieTales version, the, the version the statue was made out of chocolate, right? Or it was a chocolate bunny. And so I don't know why it was Easter around that time. So, or stories like uh, the handwriting on the wall or the fiery furnace, the three guys go in, there's four people in there, three guys come out. And what we've seen for the last six weeks throughout all of these stories has been one theme displayed in a, in a multitude of stories. And that theme is that God is faithful to his faithful people in the midst of adversity. God is faithful to his faithful people in the midst of adversity. And so last week we looked at Daniel chapter six, Daniel in the lion's den. And here between chapter six and chapter seven is where many Churches, many preachers are tempted to like close up the book of Daniel to kind of wrap it up and then to move on to something else because it's right here at, the, at this shift from Daniel chapter six to, Dan, to Daniel chapter seven that things go from being kind of wild to being just straight up weird, right? Like, which is really saying something because at this point, in Daniel, what we've seen is we've seen a king lose his mind and roam around like an ox eating grass. We've seen three men emerge from a raging furnace unharmed. We've seen a floating hand writing a message on a wall. And we've seen a dinner date with lions where Daniel was the main course, but he came out alive. And you might be asking at this point, as we're walking through Daniel, how much weirder could it get? Well, I'd love to show you. If you have a Bible, open to Daniel chapter 7. How much weirder could it get? Oh, buckle up. Daniel 7. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a, had a dream with visions in his mind as he, was as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared, and it was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all, from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. 
While I was considering the horn, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly, in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire, a river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions of my mind terrified me. I approached one of those, stand, one of those who were standing by and asked them to clarify all of this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive a kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet, whatever, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. And as I was watching, this horn raged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom of the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to, charge, to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for, for, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So now might be as good a time as any, to kind of explain the approach that we take when it comes to preaching at Candeo. And our approach is that as we choose the different, uh, the different things that we're going to preach about, our starting point is most often to choose the, the, a book of the Bible and walk through it systematically, section by section, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. Now, on occasion, we'll pull over at times and look at very specific sections like we did with the Sermon on the Mount last spring, or we will look at kind of like successive themes that run through Scripture with a variety of verses kind of attached to those to show those themes like we will as we go through Advent. 
But even in those times that we aren't walking through an entire book of the Bible, the regular normative diet of preaching here at Candeo is to let the text of Scripture be the driving force of what we preach, rather than what we want to say being the driving force, and then we go and find verses in the Bible that kind of just reinforce what we want to say. In other words, it's the difference between having the Bible determine what you say or having what you want to say determine the parts of the Bible that you use. And what we want to do is we want to begin with a text of Scripture so that as you are sitting there and as one of us is up here preaching that text to you, that you are able to see that it is obvious that it is Scripture that is determining the content of the message. And that means that when you assess a sermon, the first thing you should ask yourself when you're, when you're assessing, because I, I know what you're doing right now. You're going like, do I like this sermon or do I not like this sermon? Was this worth coming to church today or was it not? You're like, I'm only here for the baptism, so blah, 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 blah. I know what you're doing, because that's what I do. If I'm not preaching, that's what I'm doing. I'm going, is this good or not? You know? And as, what this means, though, is that as you assess the sermon, as you are right now, the first question you need to ask is not firstly, how does what Jake is saying, how does this make me feel? Now, I'm not saying that's a bad question to ever ask, but it certainly shouldn't be the first question we ask when we're assessing sermons. The first question we should ask when we're assessing sermons is not, how does this make me feel? The first question we should ask is, is this faithful to the text? Is this faithful to the text that we are reading? Because the job of whoever stands up here and opens the scripture is not first and foremost to make you feel a certain way. But the job of those of us who stand up here and preach the scriptures is first and foremost to help you see what this book actually says and then explain it in a way that we can all understand. And as we understand what the Bible actually says, we would pray that the Holy Spirit would then take that text and apply it to our hearts and lives and that it would change the way that we think, change the way that we act, and change the way that we feel. Now, the benefit of this approach to preaching is that it prevents us from only talking about the things, only talking about certain things while simultaneously neglecting other things. In other words, it helps us as a church to hear the full counsel of the word of God rather than the things that Jake gets excited about or that Cody gets excited about or that some particular person gets excited about because left to ourselves, there are certain things we would just naturally lean towards wanting to talk about in preaching, and there are other things that it would be very easy for us to neglect. And if the goal was to only preach the easier, more obvious parts of the Bible, then we probably would have ended our series in Daniel last week and then closed up shop and pretended like Daniel 7 through 12 didn't exist. As you probably noticed, Daniel chapter 7 is a little weird. If you felt that, that's okay. It feels very, very different from Daniel chapter 6 because what we have between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that we stand at the precipice of a seismic shift in the book of Daniel because what happens here between Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7 is a dramatic change in the style of writing. 
And so we need to shift how we read and understand Daniel accordingly. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, you already do this throughout the day. You interact with and read various styles of writing and you move between them seamlessly. You do it basically unknowingly, like where one minute you're reading a post on Instagram and then you switch over to your news app and then you see while you're reading the news, like an email from your boss comes in, right? And then you, later on that night, you are trying as hard as you can to put together that desk from Ikea, which that's probably as close to reading prophecy as you could probably get. You're like, poof. I got pictures to go off of here, you know, right? Like, Swedish are great. Instructions might not be one of them, you know? And so like, and then you go from that and you might end the day reading a good novel, a good fiction book. And in all of this, no one has to tell you to read the comics differently than you read the news. Though, let's be honest, it can be a little hard to tell the difference lately, right? But no one has to tell you that because you know instinctively that different styles of writing require a different kind of reading and a different kind of understanding. And what we have in the shift from Daniel chapter six to Daniel chapter seven is a shift from a, a more story form of writing, like a narrative sto- a form of writing to what's called apocalyptic literature. Now, if you think, like you, heard, you hear the word apocalyptic, maybe you think of you know, nuclear fallout and zombies walking the streets, right? Like that's not, um, that's not what apocalyptic actually means. The word apocalyptic or apocalypse sim- simply means to unveil, or to reveal. This is why the book of Revelation is called Revelation, because it's a revealing of what's going on. Because what apocalyptic literature does is is it essentially, it pulls back the curtain on what is happening or what is going to happen, and it reveals the spiritual realities behind events that are happening now or events that will happen in the future. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing of the spiritual realities, the spiritual forces that are taking place behind the scenes of what is going on in our world and what will go on in our world. So with this seismic shift, how should we read this style of writing? How should we read and understand apocalyptic literature? Just a few things. Firstly, we need to keep in mind that we are dealing with visual impressions. It's kind of like the difference between reading a book and watching a movie. Now, your imagination is probably great, and as you read the book, you are creating the scene in your mind. You kind of have these like pictures, but then as you watch the movie, you're like, wow, look at all the detail. Look at all the color. Look at all the vibrancy. This, you know, the, the, the computer graphics and the animation, all all these kinds of, it's, it, it, it fills out, right? What we're dealing with with apocalyptic literature is more like watching a movie than it is like reading a book because we're dealing with visual impressions. And as such, we will get ourselves into trouble if we try to analyze and interpret every little detail, every little detail. Now, there are, there are plenty of people who, wanna, who tend to approach apocalyptic literature like this, where they will read, you know, apocalyptic scripture and then try to tie every detail, most often to modern day events that are going on. And often what tends to happen is, is, a, is an incredible amount of, uh, of interpretive gymnastics in that. 
But the first thing we need to understand as we read apocalyptic literature is that if there were ever a time to apply the saying that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things, it would be when we're reading apocalyptic literature. In other words, don't miss the forest for the trees. It is so easy to miss the forest for the trees when you're reading this kind of literature. So that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. Second thing we need to keep in mind is that while there are details in in apocalyptic literature that can be tied to specific people and places and events, we're going to see this next week in Daniel chapter 8 where you have the ram is representative of of uh, media and Persia, because it says that's what it is, where there's this shaggy goat. You think this week's weird. There's a shaggy goat next week, guys, and it represents Greece, because it says it represents Greece. Like, there are certainly things connected to specific people, places, and events. Often in apocalyptic literature, the meaning can have both a near reference and a future reference. It's kind, of like, uh, it's kind of like a shadow and an object. That there could be a near reference where this thing or this image represents this specific place or specific person or specific event, but often that is simply a shadow. It is a, it is a type to point forward to something much greater, to point forward to a much greater reality that is yet to be seen. And finally, something that we should be aware of as we read this kind of apocalyptic prophecy in Daniel is that one thing that distinguishes Daniel's prophecy from the prophecy, from other prophecy in the, in the Old Testament like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, is that Daniel is never told to share his visions with the people of Israel to call them to repentance. Whereas, when you see in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're given these visions, these these apocalyptic visions, and these prophecy to give to the people of Israel to call them to repentance. Daniel never has that. Daniel is never told to do that, which means that while other prophets are bearers of bad news, Daniel, despite the disturbing nature of his visions, Daniel is the bearer of good news. Because they're already in exile. They are already suffering under the judgment of their idolatry. Like they were already called to repentance and did not repent. And so Daniel's visions is not to bring bad news to the people of Israel in exile. It is in fact to bring good news. These visions are meant to be an occasion for anticipation and an occasion for hope. And the hope is that though followers of God will be opposed and oppressed for a time, God will have the last word. And he will have the final victory. So now we're halfway into the message and you say, Jake, you've done a really good job stalling. Now what in the world is with Daniel 7? Fair enough. So here we go. So we begin chapter 7 and Notice we are moving back in time, right? Because it begins with, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon. If you remember, uh, in Daniel chapter 5, what Daniel chapter 5 is, 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 is a description of the final hours of King Belshazzar. And yet, this vision comes to Daniel 
in the first year of his reign. And so what is happening is Daniel is getting this vision in between Daniel chapter four and Daniel chapter five. And as Daniel lays on his bed, he sees a few things. The first thing that he sees is in verse two. He sees four winds of heaven. He sees that four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Now these four winds likely refer to the universal nature of this event. Winds from the north, winds from the south, winds from the east, winds from the west. Winds from everywhere representing the universal nature of what is about to happen, what he is about to see. And the winds stirred up the sea. Now the sea in the ancient world was a representation of chaos. It was a representation of of danger. It was a representation of destruction. Because think about it, in the ancient world, I mean, even now, if you spend much time in the open seas, it is an incredibly dangerous place. That's why it's called the most dangerous catch. So the sea wasn't a place where you went to vacation in the ancient world. Often it was a place where you went to fight for your life. And these chaotic waters, unpredictable and powerful, stirred up by the four winds. And out of this chaos arises four chaos monsters which we know from the later interpretation that these represent kings and kingdoms. These four beasts represent four kings and kingdoms who will rise from the earth. Now, it's really easy for us to want to know, now, who exactly do these beasts, do these kings represent? Who are these beastly kingdoms, these beastly, chaotic, destructive kingdoms? And you could make the case that the first beast, the very first one that rises up, represents Babylon. Part of the reason why you can make this case is because back in Ezekiel chapter 17, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is likened to an eagle, which is part of this beast, lion, an eagle, and an eagle whose wings are torn off. And for eagles, when your wings are torn off, that is an incredibly humbling circumstance, which is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar roamed around like an ox until he came to his senses. In other words, until he was given a human mind. He lost his mind. He became like an animal, but then came to his senses and was given a human mind and had his feet set on solid ground. So you could, you could make the case that this first beast is Babylon, the nation of Babylon. And then you could go, well... Let's just follow the history. Let's just follow the timeline. So if the first beast is Babylon, then the bear must be Medo-Persia, then the leopard must be Greece, and then the fourth beast must be maybe Rome. And I'm increasing in power, and that'd be fine. That would be fine to take that as your interpretation of the beast. Many theologians, probably a majority of theologians, take the beast to mean that. And I would agree with them, with with the one exception that um, I take it, now, You may hear this a lot in the last half of Daniel. I take it. This does not mean that you have to take it this way. We don't know it for sure. But I see the fourth beast as being so unique, so distinct, so different than the other beasts and the other kingdoms that they represent. So different and other and in a class of its own that it's possible that this fourth beast represents a universal empire that is yet to be established that will make all the other empires, regardless of their chaos and destruction, pale in comparison. That it will make all other empires look benevolent 
in comparison to the destruction and the chaos and the evil that this fourth empire will bring. That's how I take it. You don't have to take it that way. But notice that the focus of this chapter is not ultimately, ultimately, on the identity of the beasts as much as we want to know what they are because they're weird. We want to know what the weird things are. But notice that it's not, on the, it's not ultimately on the identity of the beast. It's ultimately on the God who vanquishes the beast. Because however you understand these beasts and what they represent, the principle holds true that the overall pattern of human history and human kingdoms and nations and governments is that anything that we establish as humans eventually devolves into chaos and destruction. We just, we just cannot help it. And we try so hard to not make it that way, right? But is this not the, the storyline of human history? Is that as much as we wanna to try to make the world a better place, we just end up generally doing the opposite, but just in different ways. Same outcome, different way to get there. That no matter how you slice it, we as humans, when we set up governments, when we set up empires, they inevitably bend toward domination, destruction, and chaos. But then what we get as we get into Daniel chapter 7 is that the scene cuts, kind of like a movie, right? This is visual, this is impressions, this, this is the scene cuts away from these beasts, and now we are in a courtroom. That's chapter, or that, that's verse 9 and 10. Right, you see, and as I kept watching, thrones were set in, set in place, and the Ancient of Days. Who is the Ancient of Days? It's pretty clear that this Ancient of Days is God himself, right? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Oh man, don't miss this. That in the midst of chaos, as chaos and the monsters of chaos rage and devour, that the ancient of, that the ancient of days, that God himself is not frantic. And he is not panicked. He is not chaotic, nor does he join in the chaos, but God is calm in the midst of the chaos. And he takes a seat. You see, God is both never in a hurry and he is also never late. You probably wish some of your family this morning were in more of a hurry because you found yourself being late. And like, if I'm not in a hurry, I will end up being late. God is never in a hurry and is never late. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow. This, this, is, this is representing the unmatched purity of God, white like snow, and, his hair, and, and the hair of his head was the whitest wool, unmatched purity. His throne was flaming fire, blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out of his presence, unmatched purity and unmatched power. And then check this out. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000. This was the ancient world's way of saying a gazillion people 
around the throne of this non-frantic, non-chaotic God who is sovereignly in control of everything, never in a hurry, never late, gazillions of people. Imagine Daniel seeing this. Remember, this is, this is between chapter four and chapter five. Daniel, one of the people of God, faithful to God in the midst of a pagan culture. How often do you think Daniel felt totally alone in following God, in serving God, And yet what God is showing Daniel in this with these thousands upon thousands upon thousands is that, Daniel, though you feel alone, you are not alone. And Christian, if you could see what you can't see, you would see the same thing. That though you feel alone, as a follower of God, in the midst of a culture that is against your God, that is against your faith, that is against your beliefs, that though you feel alone, as the only believer in your classroom, as the only believer in your dorm room, as the only believer in your apartment, as the only believer in your family, if you could only see what you can't see, You are not alone. And the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne, destroys the fiercest kingdom that the world will ever produce. And then one like the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, comes with the clouds of heaven to receive for himself a kingdom and to receive for himself a people of every people, nation, and language that will worship him. And this is a kingdom that will never pass away. Who in the world is this one like a Son of Man? Who is the one who comes with the clouds? Which, by the way, in the ancient world, the only person who ever comes with the clouds is God. Who is this one from heaven but resembles humanity? Now, this is easier for us to understand than it was for Daniel. Because we know of one, and we know of only one, who combined the fullness of humanity with the unparalleled glory of God. This is the one who is almost exclusively referred to in the New Testament as the Son of Man. This is Jesus Christ. Second member of the Trinity, Son of God and Son of Man. Now at this point, we've kind of looked at some of the trees of Daniel 7, but it would be helpful for us to step back and take a little bit of a look at the forest because we're asking ourselves the question, what in the world does this mean then? What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the point? This is a great question. If you're asking that question, you're asking the same question Daniel asked in verse 16. I approached one, one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all of this. Even Daniel was confused. What does this mean And what in the world does this have to do with us in 2022? A couple things. First, if you read chapter 7 carefully, you'll notice that in the progression of the beasts, there is an escalation of chaos and destruction. And since the beasts represent kingdoms, this means that as time goes on, our world and its powers will continue to get more, not less, chaotic and destructive. 
This is the pattern of human kingdoms. And so lest you have any idealistic vision of a utopian future that will come about through social programs, through green energy, through low taxes and booming economies that will result in a pleasant life for Christians everywhere. What Daniel's vision shows us is that any notion that we are rolling along the roads colored tracks of human progress is woefully mistaken. In other words, Christian, Do not expect our world to become friendlier to your faith. It will not. But instead, expect for the world's hostility toward you as a follower of Christ, expect for that hostility to grow. Expect for it to escalate. Do not be surprised when that happens, not if that happens, when that happens. Now you say, Jake, you said that Daniel's visions were supposed to be encouraging. How in the world is that encouraging? That's not encouraging. Because the second thing we see from Daniel 7 is that though difficulty will abound and that though difficulty will escalate, it will not prevail for the people of God. That's verses 21 and 22. Look at this. And as I was watching, this horn, the most powerful of these kingdoms that are raised up, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them. Now, if that's where that verse ended, there's no hope. There's no, there's no anticipation. There's no encouragement. But that's not where the verse ends, is it? And was prevailing over them until... Now, the, the, the verse numbers in your Bible are not divinely inspired. So if it helps you to cross out verse 22 because it breaks up that sentence, go ahead. That's what I have done as well. Because it is so easy to miss the until. It's so easy to get anxious over the and was prevailing over them. Like, it looks like they're winning because evil is winning. Evil will look like it's winning. Ah, until until the ancient of days arrived. It's kind of like in Lord of the Rings. I've been slowly reading through Lord of the Rings and then watching the movies. It's kind of like in Lord of the Rings on the second one at the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? When Sauron's forces are prevailing over the army of Rohan and Aragorn and Gimli are in there, right? You remember this? Like the orcs are scaling the walls. The the doors are being, you know, beaten down, and Aragorn lurks over at the, at the commander of the army of Rohan, and he's like, well, and they ride out, right? And it's like, they're not going to win. They're not winning. They are losing. The army is prevailing over them. But then what happens? You hear the horn, and you look up, and ah, Gandalf. That's how that always happens, right? Just when it seemed like all was lost, Gandalf arrived. Now, why? That's, that's not a unique storyline. That's, that's most storylines of most movies, that things are looking incredibly difficult, that defeat is imminent, and then the hero arrives. Why in the world do stories like that, whether you're a Christian or not, why do stories and scenes like that resonate deep within our heart? It's because deep within us, we long for a hero to set right all that is wrong. to put an end to evil, 
to put an end to suffering, to put an end to oppression, to make all the sad things come untrue. The kingdoms of the earth will, will wage war against the holy ones of God. You know what the New Testament calls you if you are a Christian? The New Testament calls you a saint. It calls you a holy one. You do not need to have your face in stained glass in order to be a saint of God. The kingdoms of this world will wage war against you. They will hate you and seek to destroy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And they will wage war against the holy ones of God and for a time will prevail until God shows up. You see, what the, this vision showed Daniel and what this vision should show us today is that though our kings and though our culture disregard God, and though things will get worse for you as a follower of God, though evil will prevail for a time, it will not prevail forever. So Christian, this morning, see from the weird chapter of Daniel chapter seven, that things will get worse before they get better, that your faith in Christ may cost you your reputation, it may cost you your relationships, it may cost you your career, it may even cost you your life. But that despite what you see online and that despite what you hear in the news, that ultimate power, ultimate power is not in elections, cities, courthouses, or white houses. Ultimate power is in the one who sits on the throne. That ultimate power is in the ancient of days, the one who was here before all things and the one who will be here after all things, the one who is in control of all things. That is our God and that is our King. And the reason that we can have hope for this future is because when the Prince of Heaven was slain, and when he lay in the grave for three days, when it looked like the powers of darkness had prevailed, when it looked like evil had won the day, what everyone thought was a crushing defeat was actually a conclusive victory. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And though the powers of hell could knock him down, they could not keep him down. So stand firm, student. Stand firm, teacher. Stand firm, John, Dor John Deere engineer. Stand firm, person who works at VGM in a cubicle. Stand firm, men. Stand firm, women. Stand firm, boys and girls alike. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and against the evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And our God, the Ancient of Days, our Savior, the one like of the Son of Man, he will one day destroy them all. So Christian, take heart and stand firm. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Our strength is no strength compared to you. The powers of evil are no powers compared to you. God, we ask that you would 
Give us courage. That you would strengthen us in heart and mind, in word and deed, to stand firm according to your ways in the midst of a culture that is so against us and will continue to be and will increasingly become so. Oh God, would we be a people of grace and truth, of humility and kindness, but also a people with a tremendous backbone because we know that you secured our victory, that we are seated in the heavens, united with Christ, that one day you will right all wrongs. You will make all the sad things come untrue. Give us courage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.